Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to see you all. Uh, this week I was out in Ocoee, Tennessee at a summer camp with a bunch of middle school and high school students. So it's, it's uh, fun to get up here and see adults. So great to see you guys. The, I will say the energy is a little lower in this room than it was uh, through the week, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm super glad to be back. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Got to take the family. But welcome to Fellowship Asheville. If you're new, uh, let me just say hello. My name is Matt Sutton. I'm the associate pastor here. And uh, we've been going through Ecclesiastes. This is our uh, fifth week going through it. So we're in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles today, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, we're just going through five verses today. So we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 4. And... Um, as we get into it, I just, I just want to say, um, if, if, if you haven't done, just kind of by way of reminder, um, the, if you're a part of our church, if you get kind of our communication, if you're a member or have started the process of membership, discovery and stuff, or you're in a group, um, over the last few months, you, you uh, should have gotten surveys from Fred. And, and let me just kind of remind us um, what those do. So traditionally, kind of in churches, the way you track uh, or... Um, People would track and measure successes by numbers, like number of people who attend, number in the budget, things like that. But that doesn't necessarily equate with spiritual growth. And so tracking that, our elders and pastoral team want to just kind of know how we're doing in our journey following Jesus and discipleship. So the surveys you've gotten, the, the fifth one came out just this past week, right? And so, um, so you can go back and just kind of ask some questions just about rhythms in your life following Jesus, stuff like that. It's just really helpful for, like I said, the elders and pastoral team as we're thinking about praying about, you know, teaching, you know, kind of the future of the church, where we're headed. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to track growth other than just kind of those, those numbers. Does that make sense? So if you don't mind, you know, search. Maybe, maybe it went to your spam folder or something. That's okay. If you haven't gotten them and you would like to get them, we can figure that out. Maybe email me or Fred or, or whoever Fred can send it to you. But um, just want to remind you because that does tie into uh, the practicing the way stuff on Wednesday nights this summer, kind of why we're doing it and, and, and why we think it's important um, as a pastoral team. So uh, just wanted to give a little, a little plug there and remind you to fill those out. Um, and so let me, let me pray for us this morning before we jump into um, our passage of Scripture and the message for today, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into the Word. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks so much for your Word. As, uh, as we gather together as a people here um, in the beautiful mountains of North Carolina, 2,000 years after your life, death, and resurrection, we open your Word uh, because we trust you, and we know that it's good for teaching and for, for showing us how to live, but also how to be more like you and how to live like you. So Jesus, uh, I want to just ask you to be true to your promise that your word will not return void. Uh, work in our lives today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I mean, when I was in, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I remember um, I've always been kind of a, a diplomat and kind of a mediator. And, and I remember in fourth grade, we were out at recess. It was when my family was still living in southeast Georgia. And uh, two of my friends got in a fight in recess, okay, and so they were getting in trouble. Our fourth grade science teacher, Miss Winters, uh, walked over and was and was you know, t you know, scolding them, getting on to them. And I thought that would be a good chance to step in and tell her what was actually going on, what actually happened, the motivations behind it. So I step in and I'm like, Miss Winters, here's the, here's what happened, and I start explaining it. And I just remember she looked at me and she let me finish talking, and then she just said, "Go mind your business." 
And I said, okay. So I walked away. But that, just that phrase, just mind your business. Mind your business, you know, ha- has been one that's kind of stuck with me. You know, there's like, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but there's like a few, you know, specifics like that that kind of stick with you your whole life. And what we're looking at today are, are four portraits of the way that people mind their business, the way that they handle their life, their motivations. And three of them are what the, the word the, that the preacher, the teacher, the, the author of Ecclesiastes has been saying over and over that it's vanity or it's meaningless. The fourth one is found actually right in the middle of the passage, and it's a portrait of peace. And so I want to, what I'll hope for us to, to be able to do today is walk away being able to kind of identify where we see ourselves in those portraits and then be able to kind of see how Jesus is calling us into a deeper life of peace with him. And so, so the four portraits, okay, I don't have an alliterated outline today, but I do have four pronouns that we're going to use to describe the motivations behind the actions that these portraits use. Because pronouns are, are really powerful things, right? They're the words that we use to express love to somebody, right? I love you, right? They're, they're words that we use to describe the way somebody hurt us, right? That's happening a lot in my house right now with our little girls is, hey, you did this to me. Hey, you said this, you did that. How dare you is one that's been said a lot lately, which is one of those that you can't giggle about, but it, you know, when you see the two-year-old anger say, how dare you, you know, it's like, you can't help, you know, it's like I don't want to laugh at what you're going through because it's very real to you right now. But pronouns are, are, are very important. And so the first one that we see, the first portrait that we see, the, the motivation behind this pronoun is yours. It's yours. Let's look at, look at chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw all the toil and achievement spring up from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless in chasing after the wind. So the first portrait that we, that we see here is someone who is kind of a workaholic, but not for the sake of loving work or escaping something. It's, it's work that is taken to try to achieve what other people have. Work is good. Humans, we were made to work. We were made to cultivate, to work, to make good things with our hands. But this portrait is someone who uses work to hide and disguise their real motivation, which is envy. Which is why the, the pronoun for this portrait is yours. Envy is a really powerful motivator. And it stems, what I think, kind of in the biblical story that we see, envy stems from kind of two things. One, it stems from just wondering, is there enough for me? Like, is there enough blessing? Is there enough goodness that God has and created as a good father to be enough for me? Is there enough provision Is there enough recognition? Like I see what these people are getting. I wonder if I could get the same thing if I achieved that. Right? This has been going on like over and over throughout the biblical story. It started, we see it with Cain and Abel. Right? Where Abel takes a gift to God. It's accepted. Cain's is not. And so basically he says, I want to be recognized to and receive the blessing of God. That's why God said, hey, like, like, if you do what is right, won't you too be exalted? That, that phrase means, will, will not, literally means, will your face not be lifted up too? Will your head not be raised up among other people? Because Cain had just seen Abel's head be lifted up among, like, between the two, 
Abel's got lifted up, and God's saying, hey, if you just do what's right, well, that is, not, is not that what's going to happen to you? But, of course, we see Cain, out of his envy, he chooses to work and take Abel's blessing at the, with the matters of his own hand by murdering him, right? That, this happens on and on throughout the scriptures. Whenever Jacob comes in and steals Esau's blessing from Isaac, right? Esau asks his father, he says, is there not enough for me too? I mean, even all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they, they didn't know, they were, they were tempted to believe that what they had would not be enough, and so they exalted themselves to be on the right hand of God. And we know that from Isaiah and Ezekiel, from the serpent, the descriptions of the one who came to tempt them, that he was envious of God's throne. So he wanted to take that place himself. See, this gives us a little more insight to another reason why envy is a motivation is because when we feel like a failure, we look to achieve what others have achieved a claim for. Right? It says that, that out of all the toil and achievement that springs up from one person's envy of another. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says it like this. Even in friendly rivalry, this may play a larger part than we think. For we can bear to be outclassed for some of the time and by some people, but not on a regular basis or too big of a deal. Right? I mean, think about like, like anybody competitive in here? Any, anyone in your family have to stop playing certain games because of how heated it gets? Right? Small picture of reality. Right now, we're, we're in the phase right now in our home where our girls always, like our, my five-year-old core wants to race everywhere. But if I win, like, it's bad, right? It's bad. I can't, it's like not worth it for me to win, but I'm very competitive too. So it's like every now and then, it's good to learn, right? I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I do win sometimes. Um, here's one way just personally, like I've had to, I, I had to fight this. Um, so a little bit about my story in ministry when I was, uh, before Anna and I moved back up to Asheville, I was working at a, at a church down in Georgia, and because of the, the name of this church and because of the platform, I started getting asked to, to preach at um, like student ministry events, FCA events, and stuff like that. Um, and I knew I had to kind of wrestle for myself like the trajectory I was on, and, and don't, I'm not bragging, it's mainly because in, in certain uh, church cultures where it's platform's a big deal, I was tall, and generally athletic looking and could talk on stage with a microphone without making a total fool of myself. And so just based on that, like it was like, hey, you can come get on stage. You can do this. You know, you can whatever. And, and so, um, so I was, I was kind of on this preaching circuit and, and, and uh, knew, Ann and I knew, we were praying about that, that God wanted us back up here in the mountains of North Carolina. It's where we'd always felt like we were called to, to serve and do ministry. And um, when I got the call to come back up here, uh, the, the opportunity was to come be a kid's pastor. So, so I was in a situation where there was mega churches on every corner. Like if you've never driven around Atlanta or the metro Atlanta area, literally there's a mega church on every single corner. And so I was in that world, I was in that culture, I had the stage and the lights, but then my opportunity to come back where we felt like God was calling us was to be a kid's pastor, which is, which is no stage, no lights, no glamour, 
And to think of the trajectory of those two things, personally, I had, I had, to, I had to really pray through it and wrestle with it. And I, we, we ended up, obviously, coming back up to the mountains. I was a kid's pastor for four years. Loved it. Learned more in those four years of ministry than I've, I had ever learned in any other situation. But what was hard was seeing my friends in those situations still on the stage, on the lights. And, and, and I had to make a choice. Which one do I want to do out of envy? Take the, and I'm not saying anything bad like God's calling there, the, the local church is an ecosystem. Praise God for the ministry those churches do. But for me personally, I, it was a constant battle of going online, seeing the post of, you know, hey, pray for, you know, it's like the humble brag of like, pray for me this week as I preach to 4,000 students. You know, it's a picture and it's like, okay, dude, you know, whatever. But anyways, this is like the underbelly of the church world you're getting an insight to here. But but for me, it was like the envy. Like I, like, I had to make a conscious decision of, I know what I'm called to do. I know that God has called me to, to be a pastor in a local church and know my people. Okay, but the temptation for the platform, for the big, for the growth was there. And, and I, was, I was talking to a mentor, and I was processing this and trying to figure it out. And he told me that if I could just learn to accept the where and the what that God has me doing and to trust Okay, so this is where the trust in God outweighs and kills the envy in us. If we can trust that God is working just as powerfully where I am and that he's there, I could learn what God's peace meant. See, whenever we speak to the envy, whenever we speak truth to it, that, that actually God is good enough, that God does have enough for us, that God does love me, that I don't, I don't have to perform or do what this person's doing to be loved, no matter how much it seems like God's blessings on them, then the envy starts to die and the peace of God starts to come in our life. So that's the pronoun of that first portrait. It's yours. It's envy that's obsessed with what they have, that's so obsessed with yours that I can't be happy with mine and what God's given me. So let's look at the second verse here. Verse five of chapter four, it says, "'Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves.'" All right, that's, a, that's an interesting portrait. It's just one little verse, but it, it really packs a punch. So the first pronoun, the motivation is yours, is I want yours. The second motivation, the pronoun here is me. All right, that's the focus. It's me. See, f- verse 5 kind of gives us a, an extreme on the other end of the spectrum where the first portrait we get, and a portrait we're going to see a little later, is, is a constant like working and achieving mindset this is the opposite, and it's, and it's really laziness. This is where Ecclesiastes parallels and rhymes with so many of the Proverbs in the wisdom literature. Is that, that laziness, look what it says, is that it's the motivation of the fool, according to the preacher. They don't see work as the opportunity to get ahead of others, but they actually see work as a limit to life in general. They don't want to work, right? Like, like, why would we? Like, didn't we just read a few verses earlier that that shouldn't life be about enjoying and consuming the things that God given us? And it takes away the reality that we have to work for things. So, so you guys may have seen uh, Micah Taylor up here. He plays sometimes long hair, plays guitar. His wife Heidi sings. We were, we were talking a few weeks ago, eating lunch, and he was like, he said, Matt, wouldn't you love to just make like a bunch of money? And I was like, no, I don't want to make it. I just want to have it. Well, that's the reality. Like, if we're talking about just, if the end result is just having a bunch of money, like, I don't want to make it. Like, I'd rather just have it, right? And I was, like, joking, but, like, in a serious way. Like, right, if we're honest, like, doesn't it sound better just to have stuff than to work for it? Like, 
I remember watching a, a, the uh, Bear Grylls survival show, and he was showing how to make like traps to catch little critters that jump in trees. And he, got a, and he got a broken limb, and he set it up against the ground and the tree, so it was made like a 45-degree angle. And he talked about how that's the best way to catch, like, squirrels and stuff, because he said all mammals are essentially lazy, and they're going to look for the easiest way up a tree. Right? So the squirrel, like, within 20 minutes, he captured a squirrel because it took the easiest way out, or the easiest way up. And essentially what happened is it gets consumed, Right? Right, that's the word picture here, is that laziness gives us what we work for. Because what you get if you don't work towards something is nothing. Right, think about it, middle school students, high school students. All right, we just got done with the school year, not to take you back into that mindset. But what happens if you don't study for a test? Middle school, high school students, elementary school students? What happens if you don't study at all for a test? All right, let me, I'll get a better response from the parents. Parents, what happens to your students if they don't study for a test? They fail it, right? Right? Like, like I remember going out. I, did, I, I grew up playing baseball. Then I took a few years off in middle school, and I went out in eighth grade to try out for the middle school baseball team, and I didn't make the team because I didn't put in the work for it, right? It, it's, like, it's like muscles that you don't use atrophy to do it so this I finally after eight plus years like I grew up playing soccer I love soccer found some guys to play pickup soccer with and so a few weeks ago I went out the first time in eight years playing soccer and basically the whole time I was like my body used to do different things than I'm telling it to do right now (laughs) right like I used to be able to do things with a soccer ball that I can no longer do anymore because I haven't worked out those muscles. I haven't used and trained that thing to do. See, the image here shows us the ironic thing about laziness, that instead of embracing the reality that we were made to work to get what we need, we end up being consumed by our lack of work. Once again, Derek Kidner in his commentary, I love this quote, he says, his idleness eats away not only at what he has, but at what he is. Because there's a deeper motivation here than just not getting things if you don't work like a job. Look what, it, look what he says it ends up doing. It says, his idleness eats away not only at what he has, but at what he is. It erodes his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. Right? I mean, this is really kind of self-evident if we step back to think about it. Like, what happens to any relationship if you don't work at it, right? Like how long do you text or call someone and they never respond before you stop? Like how long does the spouse try to connect with you at the end of a long day before they give up, right? How long do we not work on our sanctification and following Jesus through prayer and scripture and fasting and following before those muscles atrophy. See, being present with our kids is work. Investing in our marriages are work, in our friendships are work. Loving our community and getting to know our neighbors around us is hard work. Or we could choose me, just me, 
and cultivate that. And you know what you get if you just cultivate the me relationship? You get you. And you end up consuming yourself. You become so consumed with who you are that you lose those muscles to love and connect with the, the people and the things around you. So that's the second portrait. It's me. Here's the third one. It's in verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. So the third portrait that we get is the pronoun mine. See, it's the opposite of the lazy person because it works too much and it's the opposite of the envious because they're not motivated by what other people have. They're motivated for as much as they can get. It's the lust of the eyes that James warns us about in his letter. See, this portrait, it only wants more. It can never have enough. While the, per- while the first portrait that we saw wanted what other people's had just to be bigger and better, this person only wants more. They just want what's mine. Give me what's mine. For the fool, they only wanted what was easy. This person only wants more. It's kind of funny to, to see little kids open Christmas presents, right? Like, like one thing I, I noticed is that especially with grandparents who spoil them, okay, that no matter how many gifts they have, no matter how, how many they open, what's the first thing they say whenever they're done opening presents? Is that it? Is there more? <laughs> maybe this is a little, <laughs> maybe this hits home for some of us grandparents who have spoiled our, kid, our grandkids a little bit, right? But that's it. Like it's so, it's like, it's like that, okay, nerd moment. It's like that scene in one of the new Star Wars movies where Kylo Ren's torturing somebody and keeps yelling more. Anybody? Okay, Jared, I got you, man. Uh, Sorry, I was with students all week. I'm like still a little bit in that mode with with students, right? Like it's so fun and cute, but they only want more, right? They don't care about what they have, right? It's where where you see like the Ebenezer Scrooge, right, where he wants more, more money, more money, more money, and then he ends up being exactly what verse 8 talks about. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no one to take over his inheritance when he died is basically what that's saying, There was no end to his toil. His eyes weren't content with the wealth that he had. The the Hebrew's a little confusing in verse 8 right there because it it probably closer says, like, he never thought to ask, for who am I toiling? Right? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Because he was so obsessed with mine. What's mine? Right? Jesus had something to say about this. Right? You cannot serve both God and money. And you can substitute anything right there. You cannot serve blank and money because you will end up serving the one and hating the other, is what it says. And Jesus, not only about specifically money or wealth here, but even even like in our spiritual lives, right? Same thing, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, again, he said, hey, don't be like the hypocrites who stand up and heap up empty prayers just to be praised because they get their reward. Like, like, When you work for something and you get paid for that work you do, you get it. The paycheck for wanting so much more for yourself and not for other people, not for the glory of God, not for the good of those around you, you end up getting what you ask for. 
And that's what you get to take with you. Right? Like, don't store up treasure where, where moths and rust destroy on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, is what Jesus says, over and over. So we talked about the three portraits, yours, me, and mine, that are all meaningless and, and vanity, right? They're hevel, is, is how he describes it. And ultimately, what the, what the preacher, what the author of Ecclesiastes is showing us here is that these are people who have refused to embrace God-given limits in life as a gift. See, we all have limits in our life. Limits come to us from all different areas of life, from our family of origin to the place we were born to to the mind that we have, the way that we're wired, the way that we're wounded, our natural physical abilities. All of us have limits in our life, and it's our choice to see those limits as a gift or a curse. And the way we see them either as a gift or a curse will depend on how much we're able to live in harmony with God and others on earth. Because ultimately, like if we refuse to embrace our limits, right, like Adam and Eve refused to embrace their limits, what happens is we end up living in an unreality. Here's what Pete Scizzaro says about that. He says, there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. That's that's what true spiritual life is, is understanding the life that you've been given, the life that I've been given, and embracing it and living it as much as we can to the glory of God and the good of other people, right? Think about John the Baptist. Okay, talk about a guy who had crowds. He had entire cities coming out to him to hear him preach and baptize them. He was the main topic of all the news headlines, right? The social and religious elite were coming to him and asking for his opinions and thoughts on things. But then when the crowd started to leave him to follow Jesus, John's disciples came up and they were upset and they complained to him. And remember what he said? He said, a person can only receive what's been given to them from heaven. So he must increase and I must decrease. See, that's embracing limits. The reality is that, hey, this is the life that I'm living. You know what? And if, and if, and if my fame, if my, my you know, way of living, if all that stuff is going away because it's going to Jesus, then great. Like, he's got to increase and I've got to decrease. I'm embracing my limits and the reality of the life that I live in. That's a guy committed to reality. On the other hand, all right, another, another uh, illustration with my kids. I talked about a little bit last week that Lucy, our nine-month-old baby, is the most powerful human in our house right now. She determines when we eat, when we sleep. She had me awake from two to four this morning. Like, she's the most powerful human in my house right now. And I was thinking about the, the idea of, of, like, why it's hard for us to commit to reality. And I'm thinking, like, I, I just always think of a quote I remember one of my, my friends had. He's a few years older than I am, a little farther down the road. And he said, the, the fact is, Matt, we spend the first three years of life convincing kids they're the center of the universe. And then we spend the rest of their life convincing them they're not. And that's so true, right? I mean, like, my daughter cries and we're there. And that's okay, like we show them love, we give them support, everything they need, but some of us are still not convinced that we're not the center of the universe. We think that we should be able to be all things to all people all the time and have everything we want. And when we're not, 
we end up pitching a fit like Lucy does when she doesn't have her passy or when she's hungry. Right? Like we, it's okay for us to understand that we have to work to get the things that we need in life. That, that we have to work at the relationships that we want to see grow and flourish in our lives. And understand that there is such a thing as enough being enough. Like that's an, that is okay for us. And we see what it looks like, the portrait of someone who's okay with embracing limits. Let's go back to verse chapter five, or uh, verse six right here. The last portrait we're going to look at, it's, it's better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. See, so I love, I love this because the fourth portrait that we see is, is the pronoun ours. It's the pronoun ours. Look at it. It's, it's, it's like, I bet at this point, I wonder if when they wrote this, uh, they were meditating on Psalm 16 where it says, the boundary lines have fallen in a pleasant place for me. It's, it's when we're okay with only having one handful to our name instead of two, with as much as we can carry. I love that word picture. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. See, having, having our hands full with trying to be everything to all people all the time, having our hands full with busyness and work and obsessing about ourselves and not looking to the people around us means that we don't have any margins for other. Having one hand full frees up the other hand to be able to hold hands with someone we love or help someone up who's fallen down. So you get one handful and you get tranquility, you get peace. You understand that one is actually enough. I don't need to work for more blessing. God has given me everything I need. We can resonate with the prayer, give us today our daily bread. And we get a life that isn't controlled by envy, by drive for more that never ends, and by laziness. It's a life that's embraced the reality that I can trust God and what he has given me in my life. And that's enough. It allows us not to be anxious about anything. See, think about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. I'm going to turn there and just hit a few examples here. Think about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave us, right? Nearly half of it, if you go back and look through it, nearly half of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe a little more, deals with believing that God has enough for you. And that's okay. Right? Because he says, hey, if someone, if your enemy hits you on the cheek... You don't need to seek revenge, right? So turn the other cheek too. You don't need to get yours. Give them yours. Live with the hours mindset, right? From, from stealing to taking an oath to not wanting things that other people have over and over. Like the three spiritual disciplines that Jesus lists in Matthew 6 is giving things away, praying, and fasting, Right? So those, that's the kind of flow where, where giving to the needy is thinking, I have more than enough, so I'm going to give to people who do need. It's the one handful so that you can give to others. Prayer, he gives us a Sermon on the Mount. Or, I mean, he gives us the, 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 what we call the Lord's Prayer. Hey, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven other people. See, in the kingdom of grace, forgiveness is the currency. And you can't forgive if your both hands are full. Fasting. Fasting is where we believe literally, God, I am not going to eat because I believe you will physically sustain me. 
with your spirit today. More on that and practicing the way in August. But as we close, I want, us to, I want us to think about ultimately the person who embraced limits that he didn't really need to embrace, right? We think about Jesus. Jesus is a member of the Godhead, the Trinity, that's existed forever, never created, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, that's that Garden of Eden language where Eve took the, she grasped the fruit so that she could become like God. It's where Cain grasped the life of Abel for his own. It's, it's, a, it's the Bible using kind of rhythms and patterns that we've seen. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself. He set limits on himself so that he could die the death that we deserve to die for our sins. And in the garden before his death, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. See, someone, Jesus, was so committed to reality that he knew the plan for our redemption before the world was created, and he still went through it all. Like, if you had the choice to be human or skip the human experience, which would you choose? Because Jesus put the limits of humanity on himself where it says that he's acquainted with our sufferings. Right? Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected by his own family for doing God's will. He was betrayed by one of his best friends. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to not have a place to lay his head at night. He knew what it was like to be in awkward social situations where you're put in between two people that you care about and having to fight it out. Hebrews said that he's acquainted with our suffering. And so as we close, let me just ask, what portrait do you relate to most? What pronoun there describes the motivation that you find coming up more frequently in your life? Is it mine? You just want more? You just want mine? I just want to get what's mine? Is it me? Hey, I don't want to work because I'm just going to work on me right now. Or is it ours? Man, what I have is given to me as a gift. My life, my possessions, my things. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take, take what's mine. I'm going to embrace my limits, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with one hand open for others. And then let me ask, if you look at the life of Jesus, the life who ultimately was given as a ransom for ours, what needs to be added or taken away from your life, maybe it's attitudes, mindsets, relationships, to help us, to help you become more like Jesus? What's a limit to embrace so that we can live more like Jesus? So the band's going to come up. I'm going to close this in prayer. Then we're going to stand and worship him then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, thank you that even though you could have called down a legion of angels to save you from the cross and prove your goodness, Jesus, envy for what you knew from the, from the people around you, looking at Caesar, knowing that you were the rightful king to the world. You didn't take that chance. You didn't take that opportunity. When you were tempted, you stayed true. You embraced the limits of your life so that now we can be co-heirs with you and forever sharing the spiritual blessings of our Heavenly Father. Because we know that as, as you came to die for our sins and you rose from the grave, we who believe in you are co-heirs with you. So we know that the, the blessings of living in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father on earth and then with him forever after death. 
that it's our life that we get to live with you. So Jesus, as we think through these things, what do we need to add in our life? What do we need to take away to embrace the God-given limits and say what John said? Jesus, help us there. Help us as we seek to be more like you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.